Welcome to episode 5 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we talk with Penn State University research wildlife biologist Dwayne Diefenbach. Dwayne works for the U.S. Geological Survey. Part of Dwayne's responsibilities include running a GPS collar study of white-tailed deer. Dwayne's primary research interests focus on empirically evaluating models used to estimate population parameters and how those models are incorporated into management decisions. Consequently, many of his research projects involve game species, for example, white-tailed deer, black bear, and wild turkey. His research has focused on methods of estimating abundance as well as hunter attitudes and behavior and how that influences harvest rates and the spatial distribution of hunter harvest. In today's episode, Duane and I discuss deer capture methods, deer home ranges and how they evolve during the course of the hunting season, how deer respond to hunter pressure during Pennsylvania's rifle season, nocturnal bucks, how temperature, wind, and rain affect deer movement, adult buck survival rates on public lands, aging deer on the hoof, and the impact of chronic wasting disease. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give the video a like, subscribe to my YouTube channel, or share the podcast with a friend. I'm also excited to announce my second giveaway. When my YouTube channel hits 500 subscribers, I'm going to give away two prizes. First, a $100 gift card to Cabela's, and the second prize has been donated by Stealth Outdoors and will include a set of stealth strips for climbing sticks, a tree stand kit, and a roll of stealth strips to silence your entire setup. To enter the giveaway, visit the contact page on my website and sign up for my subscriber list. There's a link in the description of this video. Second, go to the Stealth Outdoors Facebook or Instagram pages and give them a like, and you'll be entered for the giveaway. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors, the tree stand silencing store. Stealth Outdoors manufactures a variety of tree stand silencing equipment aimed at the mobile hunter, including climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and more. Head over to www.stealthoutdoors.com to check out the latest addition to the product line, Smoke Camo, a unique open pattern camo designed specifically to camouflage and conceal your tree stand at elevation. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Snark Media Agency, a digital-first agency focused on custom web design, specialized photo and video creation, and all things marketing. Visit www.snarkmediaagency.com to establish or expand your online presence. Web, photo, video, Snark Media Agency. All right, today I'm joined by Dwayne Diefenbach. Dwayne, I'm real excited to talk to you because I feel like a lot of hunter knowledge of whitetail behavior is based on folklore, anecdotes, and campfire stories. However, I am a data guy. I love data. I actually tutored business statistics in college, and now I work in a profession where one of my primary responsibilities is data analysis. So show me the data and an acceptable sample size, and I'll be a believer. So Dwayne, thanks for joining me today. And how's life been treating you in the crazy times of 2020? Well, fortunately, I've been doing very well. Um, it's uh, working from home and learning how to commute upstairs to my new office. So I really can't complain. And my family's good, too. Well, that's good to hear. I'm, I'm also on the work from home program right now, and, and I'm enjoying that. The, the commute's a lot better and the wardrobe's a lot less restrictive. Yeah, it certainly is. So, Duane, for people who aren't familiar with you and your work, 
Let's start with how, why, and when did you get interested in, in white-tailed deer enough to devote your professional life to it? Well, um, it all started when I took my current position as uh, working at the Pennsylvania Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. I guess that it's going to take a minute to explain, but most people don't know that um, the co-op units, as they're called, were actually created back in the 1930s. Um, the first one is at Iowa State University, and they're truly a cooperative of the State Wildlife Agency. Currently, it's the U.S. Geological Survey, which is my employer, the federal government, um, and, and land-grant universities. Um, the co-op units were created because back in the 30s, there wasn't even the word wildlife and they needed to train professionals for this new profession of uh, managing wildlife for the benefit of all. So I took this position in Pennsylvania. Uh, the co-op unit was created there in 1938. Uh, of course, I didn't start in 38. I started in 1999. And at that time, the Pennsylvania Game Commission, which is one of our cooperators, was interested in initiating some white-tailed deer research. So, of course, I was engaged being a research scientist, um, engaged in that effort, and the Game Commission has been funding white-tailed deer research uh, since that time. So, basically, almost, well, about 20 years now. So, I just kind of fell into it because of my position. Um, to be honest with you, I never would have picked... Um, research in white-tailed deer as a, as a career focus, but uh, the Game Commission has put a lot of resources towards the research that I've done over the past 20 years, so it's been really satisfying. We've done a lot of nice work, um, large-scale experiments that really have shed a lot of insights on um, white-tailed deer ecology and management. Oh, great. That's a, a great introduction. And also for the people that are listening, can you kind of give a rundown of your education? And it sounds like you already talked about your, you know, you've got 20 years experience just with white-tailed deer, but maybe what you did prior to that and, and what your what your degree focus is. Sure. Well, I grew up in Vermont. Um, I did my undergraduate work in wildlife biology at Washington State University. And then I did a master's degree at the University of Maine, studying black ducks and wetland habitats in, in south central Maine. Um, after my master's degree, I went to the University of Georgia. And for my PhD research, I reintroduced bobcats to an island off the coast of Georgia. Uh, in fact, I'm still doing some research down there, which you know, kind of funny actually has a link to deer because we've shown that bobcats have had a big impact on the island deer down there. So so, though, so I've been almost all over the country. I figured after I finished my PhD, I'd head up, head up, end up in the southwestern U.S., but um, came back um, after my PhD to Pennsylvania, and I actually worked for the Pennsylvania Game Commission for seven years as, a, as their biometrician, and then took this position here um, 
at Penn State in the co-op unit. Yeah, so it sounds like you've got a, a long history in biology and, and a lot of experience, and that's why, you know, a big part of the reason I was so excited to talk to you in, in the 20 years of research that you have done. So one of the other things I wanted to, to ask about is curious, you're a biologist and you're studying um, a lot of different wildlife. Are you also a hunter? Uh, yeah, I'm a hunter. Um, I Well, my dad took me bird hunting when I was like two years old and my mom wasn't too happy about it, but he'd sit me on a rock and go walk through the coverts and come back and pick me up afterwards. Um, and I've hunted deer since I was 11 years old, but my, my real passion is, uh, is upland game bird hunting here in Pennsylvania. It's grouse and woodcock. And I've, I've gone out West to hunt, uh, prairie grouse and I've got bird dogs. So that, you know, that I deer still deer hunt every year. I love to put some venison in the freezer, but my real passion is bird hunting with bird dogs. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm uh, I'm all about deer, but I imagine doing it day in and day out of varieties, the spice of life, is probably nice to do something else in your free time. Yeah, well, deer hunting is completely different from research, but I don't know. There's just something about bird hunting that trips my trigger, I guess. I can't explain why why it is that, that bird hunting is, is my passion, but it is. It is what it is. Yeah, coming from the Midwest where I did mostly tree stand or, or stationary blind hunting and then coming out west to more spot and stock, there's definitely something to be said for moving around while you're hunting. So I think that, to me, the, the few times I've done upland bird hunting, that's definitely the appeal is get out and get some exercise and fresh air and not necessarily just sitting there freezing to death. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So... Let's move into some of the methods that you and your team are using to capture deer and, and fit the collars. So could you talk about, I know there's a couple different methods. Could you talk about how you're getting these deer in the first place to, to collar and tag them? Yeah, so here in Pennsylvania, we've, we've tried lots of different techniques um, and have settled on basically two or three as the most effective. We use what are called clover traps. And they're not what you think. Um, you'd think that that means they're baited with clover, but in fact, uh, they're named after the guy who designed the first trap. His last name was Clover. So, um, so we use clover traps. They're basically just a big walk-in trap that we bait with uh, corn, shelled corn. And they trip a, a trigger that causes a door to slide down behind them. And those are probably the, our most effective because we can move them around. We set them up and just have to check them every day, make sure they're baited, find areas where there's a lot of deer activity. And of course, we're, we just capture the deer um, January through March, sometimes into April if it's a, a really late spring. But the clover traps are really effective because they're easy to use and we can have a whole trap line set up. Uh, the other technique that we use, probably this, well, it depends on the habitats we're in, but the second most common, I guess I'd say, would be what we call a rocket net. That's a, oh, what is it? It's about 30 by 60 foot square net. 
and um, you actually it's there you attach three rockets three or four rockets to it when you detonate those rockets they shoot the net out over the deer so it's a pretty exciting way to catch deer and it can be effective I mean you can catch four or five deer uh, you just have to make sure that you have um, enough people on hand to to control the deer once they're in the net the drawback is that when you catch a deer in the rocket net you have to sedate them because they get all tangled up and you usually caught four or five deer at once so it takes a while to process them and so you have to sedate them because deer if they're stressed and held in captivity too long get what's called capture myopathy and we don't really completely understand what happens but basically the animals are stressed their muscles are tense and lactic acid builds up and it actually can start breaking down muscle tissue. So, but if you can sedate them, you don't have any problems with that. So, so that's our next second most common technique. And then we also have used what we call drop nets. And these are really big nets. Oh, boy, they're probably 90 feet on a side square. Big metal posts that hold them up. Um, we have a special remote controlled trigger mechanism. So basically you bait the middle of underneath the net and get deer used to walking in there and feeding on the bait. And then the night that you're going to trap, you get a crew of people, um, the deer come in and you drop the net. And so you can catch a lot of deer at once with that. The only problem is it's, you, you're not going to move that um, trap very often because it takes, you know, several hours to set it up, and it's heavy, and, you know, you could spend a day, you know, four people taking down a net, moving it, and setting up in a new place. So, so you have a big investment in the, in the establishment of the trap, whereas the clover trap, you know, you, uh, two people can move it. You just throw it in the back of a truck or on a trailer, and then when you do catch deer, um, you can... You know, when our crews get real well-trained and have a lot of experience handling deer, they can run in, tackle that deer, and restrain it, Get all, collect all the data that we need to collect, ear tag it, and put a radio collar on in under 10 minutes. So with the, with the clover traps, you don't have to sedate the animal. Um, it's a very short handling time, and they're easy to move. So that, you know, really is the preferred capture method. Uh, we've tried other uh, We actually, when we first started, um, it was in 2002, there was a helicopter crew that was up in New Hampshire catching moose and they were coming back through Pennsylvania and we hired them to, to capture some deer with the helicopters out in western PA. And the problem in Pennsylvania is that our trees are just so tall. I mean, a hundred, 120 foot oak tree, you know, is not uncommon. And so the deer, uh, the helicopter just can't get down low enough to flush out the deer. And the other problem is helicopters can cover a large area and we just can't get enough permission from enough landowners 
to make it effective to say, okay, you've got you know this area to catch deer. The helicopter is just not an effective tool. But out west, where you are in Montana, and many of the western states, the helicopters um, are extremely effective. I mean, I've seen in Texas where they can catch enough deer in two days that would takes us four months in in Pennsylvania. Oh, with helicopter nets, huh? Well, one other thing I wanted to talk about, and it's going back to the clover trap. So in preparation for this this podcast here, I reviewed uh, almost the entire P- Penn State University deer blog, which I'd highly recommend to anyone listening. Go ahead to, to PSU deer blog and check that out. But it appears in the clover traps, as you, you kind of alluded to, there's a little bit of deer wrestling that occurs when when you're getting in the trap and, and applying the radio collar and, and taking whatever data or samples that you're taking. So you have any entertaining stories about, about interns wrestling deer? Yes. It's uh so it's a job for young people. It's uh it's exciting. So our crews wear, of course it's winter time, so they probably have car hearts on. So they're pretty well padded as it is, but um, they have to wear hockey masks. The hooves on deer are extremely sharp and so they have to, they need face protection. So hockey masks work really well. So the crews, um, usually there's at least two people that, two or three people, and so one person is going to dive into that trap, and the other person runs up with them and opens, the, helps them open the trap door, and then that person with the helmet goes in and tackles the deer. Um, that's all well and good, except usually in late March, things get kind of warm. And inside that trap, you can have a soupy mess of three or four inches of mud on the bottom. And it can be a pretty disgusting mess by the time <laughs> wrestling a deer. The other excitement that comes is, even though we're catching deer in wintertime, some bucks still have antlers. And that's particularly dangerous or can be dangerous. So we have a different strategy where we have, uh, well, we call it a purse net. It's just some netting um, that instead of going into the trap and trying to tackle this deer that has antlers that, that can be quite dangerous, what we do is get three or four people that hold that net um, and then they open the door and scare the deer into the net, and the net the deer gets tangled in the net, and then we can tackle it. And of course, one of the first things we do is saw the antlers off, um, so that you know no one gets injured. And so that's usually entertaining. Um, if it's a big deer, um, people are going to get dragged a little bit and maybe <laughs> knock heads together trying to keep this deer in place. And you, but the I guess it's sort of funny, but it's kind of a bummer because it's a lot of effort catching the deer. But we have had crews where the deer comes flying out of the trap and the netting just tears and the deer's gone. It costs we figure it costs us about a thousand dollars per deer because we're talking you know equipment. Well, not really the capital expense of the equipment, but you've got mostly personnel time, some baiting, you know, and some certain supplies and such. So 
it's expensive to catch a deer and we hate to see one, you know, we hate to lose one, but it happens occasionally and nothing you can do about it. Yeah, sure. Sure. No, that's uh that's pretty interesting and and it kind of reminds me I worked on a, a dairy farm in high school and then I have a buddy here in Montana that is a rancher and and sounds a lot like branding, you know, cattle and, and calves in the spring and yeah, they can they can be pretty rowdy. So, I want to move into uh talking about bucks in the study specifically and one of the things that I read is that I believe all, but correct me if I'm wrong, all the bucks are two and a half years old or older going into the deer season. And, you know, this this podcast is focused primarily on deer hunting and, and most people are hunting bucks. So could you talk about why that is and what the advantage is to the research of, of collaring these two and a half year old or older bucks? The reason, the reason we only collared adult bucks or adult deer is... If we were to call or so when we're trapping in January through March, uh, fawns would be, you know, eight months old or so. Um, and then, of course, your the other deer would be one year, eight months. And so by June, they would either be one or two years old, the youngest deer. Well, the problem with the ones that are less than a year old is that the males, in the spring and early fall are going to disperse. And so most of those young bucks, 75% of those young bucks, are probably going to leave our study area. So it's not worth putting a $2,500 GPS collar on a deer that's going to leave your study area. So that's why we focus on the older deer, because we know that when we collar them, they'll remain on our study area and allow us to get the data that we need relevant to the project. Um, that's really the only reason. Well, the other, another reason is, is that fitting radio collars to younger deer can be problematic um, because, you know, they end up growing and fitting a collar to a deer is as much art as it is science. And it's much more difficult with those younger deer because you have to accommodate for growth and you don't necessarily know how big they're going to get. Um, so it's just a lot easier to deal with adult deer. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you providing that information. And it's kind of got the added benefit for my audience where most of the guys that are listening to, to my podcast are probably targeting two and a half year old or older or bucks, you know, trying to get something with a little more developed body and rack. So it's, uh, I guess, right. a, a good good side benefit for, for the listeners here. Well, let's talk about the collars themselves real quick. How often are these collars transmitting the deer's location data to, to you and your staff? Well, the collars we use are a, a GPS collar, but they also have a satellite link. So we can communicate with those callers. So we can send commands to the callers. Those callers then send data back to us. And we actually change the rate at which we get data. So the, the limiting factor with how much data you can get from a deer is how big a battery can you put on it. And so we, a lot of the deer in our study areas can live for three years or more, 
And so we have to be very careful about how many locations per day, because the more locations we get, the more it uses up battery life. Okay. And so from most of the year, we're getting oh a location every seven hours, and that way it's an odd number, and it it just kind of rotates through the day. So we get a a good picture of where they are at all different times of day, but we're not getting real intensive locations. Usually what we do is in, you know, it depends on the focus of the of our research, but usually what we've been doing is in September, late September, switch over to a location every hour. Um, but there's other times where we need locations like every 20 minutes. So it's really variable. Um, it depends on what the objectives of our research is and and how long we need those callers to stay on and that sort of thing. When we were doing some work with mother-fawn pairs where we would collar adult females and then we were able to capture their offspring as fawns and monitor the fawns, the, the females we'd put, the location would be an hour all year long, every hour we would get a location, but in, but at that case, the collar is only going to last about a year. Whereas if we do a much longer or variable schedule, we can make those collars last, you know, three years. Oh wow! You actually answered my next question was going to be what's the average battery life, but obviously it, it sounds like it depends on exactly uh, how many locations you're pinging off that collar. So one to three years is probably typical. Yeah, yeah, it just depends on how intense the locations you need. Um, you know, the technology is changing. Uh, cell phones have been a huge boon because, you know, there's billions of dollars invested into cell phone technology, and that top technology is just getting put into these wildlife collars. I mean, the wildlife profession, you know, the amount of money we spend on collars is peanuts compared to, uh, what people spend on cell phones. And so it's that cell phone technology that's really allowing us to be able to follow deer, you know, for two or three years and, and have the satellite communications and all that sort of stuff. Oh, it sounds like a great benefit, kind of how the commercial marketplace benefited from military GPS, kind of passing that technology down and across industries. Yeah, we're we're at the bottom of the... <laughs> for sure. Well, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about is, um, well, I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about concerning the collars is what should a hunter do if they harvest a collared deer? I think there's a lot of confusion about the proper procedures. Can you explain how you would want a hunter to report a deer harvested that had one of your GPS collars or ear tags on it? Um, it's pretty simple. If it's a deer that's legal to harvest, and you want to harvest it, then we encourage you to harvest that deer. One of our objectives is to understand hunter harvest rates, and if people don't harvest our, our radio collared deer, then we're not going to get, you know, the data that we need. So you're not taking away something from us. Um, you're actually helping us if that you know, if that deer is legal to harvest and, and it's a deer that you would have wanted to harvest, then go ahead and harvest it. When they do, um, the radio, 
the radio caller will have a tag on there with a toll-free number to call. Um, we also ear tag deer. You know, like some deer, let's say they're too young or they're, we just, we've caught all the adult females we need or all the adult males and we'll just ear tag them and let them go. So ear tag deer and collared deer have a toll-free number that they can call to report the harvest. Okay, so people shouldn't have any apprehension or fear if it's got a collar on, like you said, if it's legal to harvest and that's a deer they're interested in. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yep, that's that's right. And then I would imagine that you also um, highly encourage people to report that or, or what, what are they supposed to do with the actual collar itself? Let's say I harvest a buck and it's got a collar on. I call that number. Do I then mail it in or you guys pick it up? How do you take care of the collar? at that point oh well to encourage cooperation there's a uh, there's a reward um it's stated on the collar on the ear tag to report the harvest so we'll pay you um if the deer has a collar we'll either figure out some way to pick it up or you know we'll just pay you to mail it back to us okay no that's great information like i said i think there's a lot of confusion out there about what exactly is the right thing to do. So it's good to hear it from the source. Let's go ahead and, and move into some habitat discussion and Pennsylvania's hunting season dates. And the first thing I want to talk about is the study areas themselves and how you would classify them. So one of the terms that's commonly used um, with the people that I associate with is, is big woods. And what I mean by big woods is little to no agricultural ground in large continuous sections of forest and then farm ground would be like moderate to heavy agricultural ground or is it some mix in between there what's the study areas like yeah so we have four study areas they're all on state forest land so the study areas themselves are 96 percent 99 percent forest um, just contiguous forest. I mean, there's forest roads. There might be a few small openings. Of course, there's different age stands of, of forest, maybe pipelines or power line right of ways. But basically, the study areas themselves are 95-plus percent forested. Now, the, the landscape context in which they're located is a little bit different. Our two areas up north which would be called the Big Woods area, where there's probably about 2 million acres of public land and most of that being forested. Um, in that area, our study areas are mostly forested and they're surrounded by forest. In the, the two southern study areas, and oh, I guess the other thing I should mention is those forests up north are what's called northern hardwoods. So the predominant tree species would be black cherry, sugar maple, beech. Uh, there'd be some hemlocks in the wetter uh, drainages. You know, some oaks, not a lot of oaks, but just the northern hardwoods. Okay. Our, our two southern areas are in, oh, and uh, are in what we call the Ridge and Valley region. So. In Pennsylvania, it's, uh, if you're familiar with Shenandoah Valley, it's kind of like that. So we have these long linear ridges that um, 
go from the southwest to the northeast, and the ridges are primarily forested, and the valleys are where there's agriculture and human development. So our two study, and it's also in what we call the oak hickory forest. So on the ridge tops, it would be chestnut oak. When you get a little bit wetter and deeper soils, you get some red oaks and white oaks, uh, yellow poplar. Um, there was, there's some hemlock in the, in the drainages, red maple. So those would be the tree species, so and hickories, of course. So that's called an oak hickory forest type. Oftentimes, the understory is a ericaceous shrubs. shrub. It could be mountain laurel, um, a lot of huckleberry and blueberry, especially on the ridge tops and drier sites. Mountain laurel, every every hill country deer hunter's favorite plant. <laughs> yeah, and and so the. So the ridges are sandstone, much poorer soils. The valleys, of course, where the people are and growing the crops, you know, those are limestone soils, um, deeper soils, more moisture. Um, so you're, it's sort of a 50-50 mix of forested ridges and open valleys. Okay. And again, so we still have large tracts of woods, but they're centered on ridges and surrounded by ag. No, that's a that's a great explanation. So it sounds like the southern study regions are more typical Midwest type deer hunting, and then the northern regions would be more like what I think of as northern Wisconsin, northern PA, northern Michigan, where you've got a lot of really large contiguous forests. So I think that's good to give some context to the areas for the rest of the discussions we're going to have. So moving into the actual deer season dates, I'm not, I've, I've never hunted in PA and probably a lot of the listeners haven't. So what are the typical archery and, and rifle season dates in PA? Archery opens up about the first uh, Saturday, like the first Saturday in October. In the past, it has run for about six weeks. So into the rut, um, the first half of the rut, we have a, early muzzleloader that is antlerless only season in the third week in October. For older hunters, there are three days that they can hunt with a uh, high-powered rifle. And then our rifle season begins, well, it used to begin the Monday after Thanksgiving, but there have been some recent changes that it opens the Saturday after Thanksgiving. And we're actually going to have some Sunday hunting this year for the first time. Yeah, talk about that real quick because I, I don't think a lot of people know about that. Um, Sunday hunting is, or, or, or until recently, was not allowed at all, right, in PA? Yeah, unless you were hunting crows or fox or coyote, there was no Sunday hunting. Pennsylvania is one of the few states that doesn't allow it or didn't allow it. Um, it's still going to be mostly closed, but... The legislature allowed three days of Sunday hunting, so there's going to be <laughs> things are changing so much it's hard to remember. But we'll actually have some Sunday hunting during the rifle season. Traditionally, it was a 12-day season that started on a Monday, the main hunting season, the rifle season. It would start on the Monday after Thanksgiving, 
you could hunt through that Saturday. Sunday was closed, and then you can hunt Monday through Saturday. So it was 12 days of hunting with no hunting on Sunday. Now we have a Saturday opener, and there'll be some Sunday hunting during that season. Oh, that probably ought to make a lot of happy hunters in Pennsylvania, I'd imagine. Uh, some happy, some unhappy. You know, there's a lot of tradition to deer hunting, uh, especially in Pennsylvania where a lot of people, what they would do is after Thanksgiving, they would travel to the camp. So the big woods, you know, when people say big woods, it's actually a capital B and a capital W. And it has a special meaning in that that part of the state historically is where um, back at the, in the, by the 1900s, there were very few deer left in Pennsylvania. And, and most of the deer existed up in north central Pennsylvania in what's called the big woods. And in those public lands, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania actually leased land, state forest land. So they would lease like a half acre or an acre and someone could build a camp. So they would own the camp, but they were only leasing the land from the state. And the reason they did that is because to get there to go hunting, you would have to take trains and horse and, and wagons to get to your camp. And so when people would go up deer hunting, they would stay for the whole 12-day season. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of tradition. And so traditionally, people after Thanksgiving would head up north to the big woods to their deer camps. They would have you know, travel day would be Friday, they'd have Saturday, Sunday to get settled in camp, and then the deer season opened on Monday. And so there's a strong tradition, and, and a lot of people are not happy about the Saturday opener, especially ones that have that camp tradition. But, you know, deer are everywhere in Pennsylvania now, and so a lot of people, you know, can hunt out their, you know, they just have to drive a few miles down the road or maybe hunt out the back door, um, they don't have to travel to north central Pennsylvania to go deer hunting. And for those folks, I suspect that the opportunity to hunt on Sunday is probably better accepted. Or, um, But, you know, it is change. Change is always controversial, and, um, and we have a lot of change here in Pennsylvania coming up, well, last year and this year especially in the hunting season. So the rifle season, you know, is the, is the main season where most deer are harvested. Um, after the rifle season, um, the day after Christmas, uh, we have a muzzleloader and archery opens back up. And that goes into January. Although in some of our what we call special regs units, there is deer hunting that goes uh, well into, and it's rifle deer hunting like areas in the Philadelphia area and the Pittsburgh area where we need to harvest more deer, there's more hunting opportunity that with the rifle or shotgun into the late season. Is that all antlerless harvest? Well, it depends. If you're muzzleloader or archery hunting, you can, uh, you can harvest an antler deer if you have the tag. But, yeah, most of it is focused. The, the focus is on harvesting antlerless deer. Yeah, Michigan has some of that stuff in the last couple of years, too, where all the seasons used to end January 1st, but now there's special zones that 
where either CWD is a concern or there's a really high antlerless population and they've extended those seasons to the end of January and an extra 30, 31 days there? Oh, I was going to say a lot of states have gone to extending seasons. Yeah, less less hunters, that seems like a viable management tool to, to try to keep the populations in check. Is that what you guys are seeing in PA as well? Yeah, that's the objective of those late seasons is to provide more hunting opportunity to try and keep deer populations at a socially acceptable level. Okay, so I think we gave a good background about the study area and you know the kind of forest and the terrain there. And we also talked about the hunting seasons. Like I wanted to set the stage for the type of area and the season where this research is occurring. One of the things that I'm really interested in, and it's been brought up in your research, is home range. So the first thing I'd like to discuss in home range is if you can define from a scientific perspective what you consider home range to mean. So it's interesting. The The, the idea of a home range actually goes back to a paper written in 1943 by a fellow named Bert, B-U-R-T, and he defined the home range as something like the area in which an animal traverses carrying out its normal activities of gathering food, mating, and rearing young. And the point is, is that that's really a concept because how what's a normal activity and what's an abnormal activity? So the idea of a home range is really a concept. It's difficult to define. And, and I'd also like to point out that a home range is different from a territory. So a territory is something that's defended. Wolves have territories. Deer do not have territories. Deer have a home range. So the home range is hard to define, but Today, with the, with the location data that we collect and some of the more um, computer-intensive methods, we can, we can at least um, identify a home range. And, and a home range is more than just a boundary, right? You, if you think about your own life, you, you, ha- you traverse a lot of area, right? You go to the grocery store, you go to the hardware store, you go to your office, you go home. But where do you spend most of your time? You spend most of your time at the home and office. So you really could think about your home range as sort of a three-dimensional thing. It takes up space in X and Y, and there's also a time component um, in terms of where in that space do you spend most of your time. I don't know if that's making a lot of sense. But, so a home range is difficult to define objectively, Um, We do have some tools that you can kind of say, well, here's the shape of the home range. This is the area that encompasses. And we can also, with our data, show that deer spend more time in this part of their their home range as opposed to another part. So we have a concept of what a home range is. We have some tools that we can sort of define it. Yeah, and that's going to move into my second question. And this is going to be something that's important to my audience, and that's how the home range changes. And you mentioned the temporal element of the home range, how it changes throughout the season. So I know you guys have some data. Let's talk about uh, a month by month. Let's start in September because we've got a lot of September opener states. 
and go September, October, November, December, how does the home range change across those months? If you could touch on that a little bit. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to back up. So, so let's just start in, let's say, January. Okay. Um, because what you want to do is jump right into the breeding season, and that's the interesting part. So in January, February, March, all the way through September, there's really no breeding. There's very, very little breeding going on. Of course, there is some birthing going on with females. But through that whole time period, the home range size does not change a whole lot. Um, if we get some severe winter weather, movements may be restricted and you might see slightly smaller home ranges. Um, but even females that give birth to young, um, they're basically traversing the, the same area um, that they do at other times of the year. And in our study areas, that's about one square mile, whether it's a male or a female. An adult male or adult female has a home range about one square mile. So just for clarity, from January to, let's say, the beginning of September, both male and female, and one square mile, that's 640 acres, right? So that's the average or typical home range? Yep, on our study areas. Okay. And, and I'd say that that's going into, into through September and into early October. Now, where things change is around the middle of October, that third week in October, um, some of the females start coming into estrus and breeding activity gets started, and we see um, male home ranges um, are increasing in size. Half of our females are bred by the 13th of November. So the rut is in full swing in that first half of, of November. Half the females are bred by the middle of November, and then you'll recall our rifle season occurs after Thanksgiving. And so basically, our breeding season is pretty much done by Thanksgiving. Okay. What happens to home range is that males are going from a one square mile to three, four, some deer are probably covering five square miles. From 600 to up to, up to 3,000 acres, potentially, during that period. Yep. And females... What we've observed on our study areas is their home range actually declines a little bit. So at the peak of the rut, when most of those females are uh, in estrus, their home range sizes actually get smaller. And from a, from a breeding strategy, that makes a lot of sense because the bucks are running around everywhere looking for females um, and I like to say is if you're lost in the woods, what are you told to do? Stay where you're at. That's right. So that's what the females are doing um, is actually reducing their movements. So they should be easier to be found by the males. So their home ranges, they don't decline a lot. So they're going from, you know, 600 acres or so to maybe 500, four or 500 it's not a huge decline, but but there is a noticeable decline in the size of their home range during that um, during the breeding period. No, that's that's definitely interesting. One of the other interesting things that I read when I was reviewing the blog for this podcast 
was that some of your research seems to indicate that home ranges or the perimeter, I should say, of a home range will be defined by terrain features like creeks or man-made features like pipelines. So if I'm a hunter and I'm out there trying to pin down the home range of, of a buck that I've got on trail camera or that I've seen out in the agricultural field, is that something I should be looking for, these type of obstacles? Yeah, if it's not the breeding season, that might help you. So, I mean, a lot of different animals do this in that um, if there are physical features that kind of divide an area, that will be the boundary. So, you know, you can watch your robins in your yard, right? And you'll have one robin has a territory on one side of the house and another robin has his territory on the other side, the opposite side. And there could be a hedgerow and... And things like that will are natural boundaries, uh, end up being boundaries of animals' territory. And those are defended things, right? Now, home ranges are a little different. There's no defense going on. But, but I've noticed um, our deer that if there's a power line, that deer, the edge of its home range is, is defined by that power line. Uh, it might be defined by roads um, or streams. So, yeah, if you were trying to, but during the rut, I don't think that's going to help you. But outside the rut, so let's say you get a picture of a nice buck. I think you'd be less likely to get a picture of that buck on another game camera if you put that camera on the other side of the road, as opposed to thinking, you know, saying, okay, I saw this buck here. What are some natural boundaries? And then put some other cameras that are within that boundary and you might have a better chance of picking that buck up at different places on your camera. But during the, during the rut, all bets are off. I mean, those things are covering a huge area. I, I don't think that's going to help you at all. Real quick, and this wasn't in the outline, but I'm curious now that we're talking about it and maybe you know, maybe you don't know. When you talk about roads, I would imagine a gravel road is different than a two-lane highway, is different than a four-lane highway, or a stream or creek is different from a river or a really large river. Have you found any data to support that? Yeah, so a lot of my research um, has been looking at dispersal behavior in deer, and that's where we actually collared those eight months old that I talked about. And with those deer, what we found is if you have a state route or an interstate or a large river, those features will actually inhibit dispersal. So if a deer, if a deer grows up in its nat what we call its natal home range where it was born and it decides to disperse, it's going to disperse away from a two-lane highway. And if it comes in, if it runs into another highway, it's more likely to stop. So we know that, you know, state routes, you know, some of your larger two-lane roads, interstates for sure, deer will cross them, but they're less likely to cross them. And then deer that set up, if they set up a home range in which they have to go back and forth across a road, they usually end up getting hit. And that's even in our, so in our current study areas, most of our roads are just gravel roads, but we do have a few two-lane roads, and so we still get some road kills, and if a deer sets up a home range in which she's going back and forth across the road, she usually ends up getting hit. 
So the deer that live longer tend to not have home ranges that that encompass a road. The, the road will be a boundary or an edge of their home range. So yeah, I think for sure um, roads have an impact on how deer move and and how they where they establish home ranges. Okay, yeah, I mean that that's kind of my intuition or, or my gut feeling, but it's good to hear that that's the case from the GPS data too. The last thing I wanted to talk about in home ranges, so we, you talked about the dispersal of those year and those year and a half old deer, but you also have these radio collars or GPS collars on a lot of two and a half year old and older bucks. Have you seen anything to support or refute a shift in home range from one geographic area to another specifically during the breeding season? And what I mean by that is, let's say you have your, your home area, the 640 acres is area A, where this deer spends January to September. Does it go to an area B that's different during the rut? And if so, how far away on average? Well, I'd say 90% of deer, if you collected all their locations and like took the average and got the center of their home range, during the rut, the center, the center location doesn't change. Their home range just gets bigger. Most deer don't shift, you know, what I call shift the home range where they're in one location and then they move to another location. There's very few deer, males or females, that do that. Um, there are a few exceptions. I mean, we did have one deer down in our southern study area that he'd move, oh, it was three or four miles. And he did that, well, we followed him, I think, three years he apparently had a place where he would, when the rut started, he would shift and move about three miles, spend the whole rut, maybe even December, over at this other location. And then um, sometime, usually in December, but sometimes not until January, would then move back to that other home range and spend his time there the whole year. That's really unusual. Most year... They have a location, and if you plotted all the points, it just looks like an egg or something. Right, and the egg just gets bigger during the rut, then, is what you're saying? Yep, yep. That, I mean, that's what most deer do. In fact, I mean, they don't even shift. Most deer don't even shift during the rifle season when we have huge hunter pressure. They don't leave their home range. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that a little bit more so, with some questions I have later. But no, that's a a lot of really great insights on home range, especially how that expands throughout the breeding season, and you know the shifting or the lack thereof. It sounds like shifting is definitely the exception rather than the rule from your data. So that's going to be interesting, I think, to a lot of people. Um, Want to move into the wind a little bit in the study area as you mentioned, is primarily ridge and valley or what people that listen to my podcast would call hill country. So one of the questions I had is, have you looked at any correlation between wind direction and bedding location? And why I wanted to ask this question is, there's an anecdotal theory that seems to be supported by a lot of hunter empirical observations that deer bed just below ridge tops with the wind coming over the ridge so the deer can look downhill, see danger from below, and smell danger from behind. 
your collars allow you to see that type of data or fidelity or is this something you guys have ever looked into well um yeah it's uh, i do have some insights it's kind of tough because you know wind is really local so i can get weather data about what direction the wind's coming from but you know whether you're on the north south or east side of a hill completely depends on how the wind is moving in your local area and of course that's how i'm sure deer are responding to wind and so i really don't have any way to measure that you know to say oh these deer are sitting you know finding this spot because the wind is coming from this direction well the weather station that's three miles or five miles or ten miles away might say the wind's coming out of the west but where that deer is sitting I really don't know how the wind is blowing. So we don't have a lot of insights onto exactly how wind influences how deer move or where they bed down or that sort of thing. But I can say that, you know, my observation, um, especially if you go out in the wintertime and look for deer beds, if you can find a little shelf that's south-facing, you're probably going to find deer beds, right? Because they're, um, the deer are getting sun, they can bed down on that shelf, and they can look down below and see anything that's coming. So there, there has to be something to this idea that they're picking sites where they can visually watch for danger in one direction and smell danger coming in another direction. And we do see that in the in bucks, especially during the intensive rifle season, where there's a lot of hunting pressure. I mean, there's a lot of people hunting deer in Pennsylvania because we have oh something like six or eight hundred thousand deer hunters in the state. Um, so there's a lot of pressure, and and what we see happen with the bucks is that. In the morning, they will run to a spot within their home range that's like at the crest of a, a ridge, and they might be on the east side, on the leeward side of that ridge, and then they can look down, and of course, if anything bumps them, within 15 seconds, they can, you know, jump up and be down, you know, 500 feet from where they were in, you know, just a few seconds, so... Um, we see that repeatedly, and, and if you go on our blog, we've got lots of movies of bucks during the rifle season, and you can see how they have these preferred spots to hang out in the early morning when all the hunters are trudging into the woods to their deer stands. Yeah, there's 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 got to be something to it. Unfortunately, um, my radio callers don't tell me what wind direction is yet. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the localized wind, and I think that's the bane of every bow hunter I know as you look at the weather forecast. And like you said, that, that's coming from a weather station 5, 10, 20 miles away, and then you get out to your hunting area and, and due to some topography or, or vegetation, terrain, whatever, that it's doing something very different than what's forecast. So that's a, a good way to ruin a lot of bow hunting days. At least I've experienced that. Yeah, for sure. Well, and one of the other things that you just talked about there, and it's a perfect segue into the next question, is that these deer in your study area have these hideouts. And from what I remember, 
those hideouts seem to be pretty remote in in the hills they seem to be pretty steep um how long does it take the deer in the study area to respond to hunting pressure it's very quick so traditionally as i mentioned um deer season opened on monday and of course everyone was going into the woods on Saturday and setting up their tree stand. And so by Sunday, those deer have already figured out what's going on and what they're going to do. And what I point out to people is deer don't make this conscious decision of, oh, it's deer season, I need to run to my hiding spot. They're more of a just response to a stimuli. So deer that have been disturbed and have run off and run to a spot and it turns out that they don't get disturbed there, then they've learned that when there's disturbance, run over here and I'm not going to be bothered. Deer that that doesn't happen to, I think, probably get shot. But, you know, our study areas, they have some extremely steep slopes. So, um, what foresters would call a hundred percent slope, which would be forty five degrees okay and so these are there's some very steep spots in in all of our study areas um, in the ridge and valley there'll be talus slopes, so there's you know rocks the size of pillows or bigger that it's um, hardly any vegetation, extremely difficult, especially if it's wet to walk on um, and deer find these areas or happen upon these areas and learn that if I run here, I'm not going to get disturbed. And so that's what we see. Um, and they learn and they, and you know, the day before deer season trains them that there's a disturbance. I need to run to my hiding spot. And they quickly learn that if they sit in that hiding spot from four in the morning till 10 or 12, like noon the next day, then in the afternoon they can get up and start moving, and by 4 or 5 o'clock when it's after legal shooting hours, they're back down in the areas where they're foraging, um, the better foraging sites, and then by um, 4 o'clock in the morning they're running back to their hiding spot. So you think as little as 24 hours or that first disturbance, that that's enough to push these deer into those hiding spots? For sure. I mean, we see it in the movies. And the other thing is, traditionally, we've had a bear season the the week before Thanksgiving, and um, that doesn't disturb them as much, but, but that's another trigger, too. I mean, there's just a lot of, I mean, we have almost 200,000 bear hunters in Pennsylvania, and, you know, that's another, of course, bear hunting is not as widespread as deer hunting. But that potentially is another trigger for deer, for deer. Right. They might get bumped around during bear season. Then they get bumped around if someone's out the day before deer season checking out their stand. And that might be two times is enough to, to send them into that hideout. Yep. Well, let's get into some of the actual movement data now from the GPS collars. And I think some of this information, at least to me, was, was real interesting What's the most amount of miles that you've seen deer cover in a single day or maybe if you don't have a single day data in a single month? And what time of year is that? 
Well, the most movements would be males during the rut. Outside the rut, over the course of a month, you're talking probably less than a mile a day. So, you know, they might cover 25 miles over the course of 30 days. Um, during the rut, that's going to triple, you know, conservatively, because all I have is a series of points, right? right? And I'm just drawing straight lines from one point to the next. But, you know, those deer might move 90, over 100 miles um, over the during the rut, because um, the rut takes place about a month, from late October to late November. So over those 30 days, they're they're moving well over 100 miles, some of those bucks. Yeah, that's crazy, especially in that tough, hilly terrain. Yeah, and in the course of a day, you know, I've seen some bucks, oh, in 24 hours move 15 miles, probably another mile or two in elevation change. Those bucks, if you look at their movements, during the rut, they're not moving really fast, but they're moving constantly. And they basically, they very little resting. You see a slight decline around 4 o'clock in the morning, but they're just moving almost tw basically 24-7. It's at a very slow pace, um, but it's constant. And so that's how they just cover the miles. I mean, they're, you know, so they're covering, like I mentioned, on average, two to three square miles instead of a square mile. Some of them are, are covering five square miles, and they're doing that. Uh, they're just walking, walking, walking. They're not eating. They're not sleeping very much. They're just looking for breeding opportunities. Yeah, when you said slow pace, I think I remember reading in one of the blogs something that sticks out. It was like 0.8 miles an hour or so. On average, less than one mile an hour. Obviously, that varies during the day, but is that still a pretty accurate number? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, of course, I don't walk 24-7 for a month, but, um, you know, I have a hard time walking 0.8 miles per hour. I mean, that's it's not that fast. I mean, that's a pretty leisurely stroll, if you think about it, down the sidewalk. Of course, they're walking through the woods, but still... They're not, you know, they're not hoofing it, but it's, you know, slow and steady wins the race. So they're the animal that can keep moving, covering large areas is going to maximize his breeding opportunities. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, especially like you said, it's a month long. That's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk about with the movement specifically has to do with midday movement in early November and I read one of the blogs, I believe it was the November 3rd, 2014 blog. There were some observations in there and kind of talk about, you know, normally I think we talked about January to September. Deer are a crepuscular animal, meaning they have movement peaks around dawn and dusk, which I think most people know. But it seems like that, that pattern kind of shifts in November. So if you could talk about any observations you have and early November and, and midday movements? Well, all right, so there's two kinds of movements, right? So in our archery season, you know, where most of the rut's going on, those deer are simply, they're not being pushed by hunters. You know, we have 
few hundred thousand archery hunters, but that's not that's nothing compared to to the rifle season. So I've not seen any evidence that the archery season, the hunter activity during the archery season influences deer movements. They're you know they're crepuscular. If it's a male, they're still going to be more a little more active you know early morning and evening. But there, again, there's a lot of activity going on 24/7. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure you know what to say. The other than you know this is normal behavior of white-tailed deer. The rifle season is a completely different story because the activity of hunters really affects the behavior of the deer. And they're still crepuscular, but you know they're. They're a little less active during those daylight hours, but don't discount the afternoon because, you know, a lot of the bucks that I've monitored, that early morning hunt, which even for me, that's when I go out, right, because you tend to see more deer and they're more active, but a lot of those older bucks, they're already in their hiding space and they're not moving and they won't move you know, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, they're still sitting where they were at 4 o'clock in the morning. But a lot of them do get up and start moving around noon. And so I wouldn't discount, if you're interested in an older, bigger buck, hunting that afternoon time period. You know, a lot deer are definitely less active, but in some ways these older bucks um, tend to be more active. And even the females, too. They hunker down in that early morning because all the cars are driving in. Hunters are heading to the, you know, leaving the roads and heading to their deer stands or wherever they're hunting, and the deer have already hunkered down. I think uh, on average, too, the, the average deer hunter is, is not quite as stealthy as you think, so those deer, I got to imagine, they, they hear that army coming through the woods before it's ever light out or before, like you said, they're, they're already in those hiding spots. Well, I can tell you how, you know, you're not going to sneak up on a deer because our radio callers, sometimes we can drop them off so when the batteries get old, uh, the field techs have to go out and if they can get within a couple hundred yards of them, they can send a signal that causes the uh, caller to disconnect and the caller will, the radio caller will fall off the deer and they have a hard time getting within 200 yards of a deer. They know where that deer's at already, right? From from some sort of telemetry? Yeah, they have equipment. They can tell. They can triangulate and, you know, estimate where that deer is and figure out, you know, the best way to try and get within a couple hundred yards. And some days they just can't do it. It might take them two, three, four tries before they get close enough to that deer. And that doesn't even mean that they see it. it. Just means that they're within 200 yards, so the transmitter can, you know, send that signal to drop the caller. Yeah, they're they're tough to get close to. That's for sure. And I, I know there's a lot of people out there that are listening that have, I'm sure, have stories of trying to close the distance with a bow, and and it doesn't work out. I know I've got a lot of those. Well, let's talk about temperatures and specifically during the rut. And I don't know if you have data on this or not, but 
a lot of people that I know believe that warm temperatures during the rut shut down, shuts down daytime movement. Now, I'm a firm believer that the rut happens at roughly the same time every year. It sounds like you said the peak in, in PA is around November 13th. But is it possible or do you have any data that says warmer temperatures result in more rutting activity occurring at night? Any support for that or against that? Well, I did look at that once. Uh, I think it was a couple of years ago when we had an extremely warm fall and looked to see if movement rates of bucks was any different during that warm year compared to the more normal temperatures in other years, and I couldn't see any difference. To me, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess the heat could influence their movements. I mean, I know I can't run as fast when it's hot out, but these deer aren't running, right? They're just strolling at 0.8 miles per hour. It doesn't make sense that the heat would shut down the rut. I mean, the heat isn't going to influence whether a female comes into estrus. So it wouldn't make sense for a male not to continue pursuing females. The one thing I do want to say is the data that we have on the rut, you know, that's, you know, the Game Commission collected uh, thousands and thousands of, uh, it's over 6,000 roadkill deer over a six-year period. And then we could look at, of those roadkill females, we could open them up and look at their uh, ovaries or their, yeah, their ovaries and look for embryos and look at reproduction. And so the, the average, you know, the, the timing of when deer breed does not change from one year to the next. There's no evidence that it changes. Right, and that's a big sample size over a relatively long time, then 6,000 deer, six years. That's not like you looked at five deer over one month or something. Right, but what you have to keep in mind is, is that you, you're not necessarily hunting the average deer, right? The area where you hunt, the deer may be coming into estrus later or earlier, you know. So, you know, individual hunters, when they say, oh, there, there's no rutting activity going on, well, that be, may be because that area where you are, for some reason, there's not a lot of females in estrus. So the variation that hunters observe is, that's to be expected. But the fact is that that's not what's happening to all the deer. That's just happening to the deer that you're observing. So, you know, individual, you know, my going out in my back 40 and looking at deer behavior and saying whether the rut is early or late this year doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, it might mean for my back 40, but, you know, statewide on average, it's the same time every year. As hunters, we're seeing individual variation. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I would say almost all of our discussion today, we're talking about macro, large-term trends, the bell curve. We're not talking about you know, individual areas or isolated incidents. So I want to make sure anybody that's listening, this is, this is all average talk, and that's most of your research, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's... Well, I'm trying to get as big a sample size as I can and, you know, make some inferences about general patterns. And, and 
but you know the variability is important too and and unfortunately as hunters what we see is the the variability is really important and, and really drives what we see no that that does it makes a lot of sense well since we talked about and, and maybe we already answered this question but i want to ask it anyways there's a myth of the quote-unquote nocturnal buck and again that could be an individual deer but let's talk about on average i'd like you to discuss your observations and and specifically i read the blog during the 2013 uh, rifle season where you had several different bucks collared if you could talk about what you saw uh about quote-unquote nocturnal bucks well yeah it's kind of hard to define but i the patterns that we see are that that crepuscular pattern that you mentioned earlier, right? Peak of activity around sunrise and sunset. That doesn't really change, um, but you do see an overall decline in movements. So they're still most active in the morning and the evening, but their their activity overall is lower. So, you know, I guess you could interpret that or it might appear that they become nocturnal but really what i think is happening is that their just activity and their movements is really declining so in the rifle season their home range might be a hundred acres during daylight hours so they're really restricting their movements you know because of that hunting activity now this is during that rifle season when there's lots of hunter disturbance so I don't really think it's that the deer are going nocturnal. It's that they're just reducing their movements so much that it appears like they are. And I mean, I even know when I look at my game camera pictures, like, why can't I ever see that guy during daylight hours? He's always showing up my game camera at 3 o'clock in the morning, and that doesn't help me. No. No, no, that's a that's a good point. And so the the forum or community I'm a part of, there's a, a popular hunting forum called the Hunting Beast, and kind of one of the tenets of the philosophy on there is you need to get really close, especially early and late season. I mean, all times of the year, but especially those because those deer are moving so little. They're they're moving in daylight still, but like you said, might only be in a hundred acre area. So if you're not honed into that area, you're you're not in the game at all. So let's move on and talk about rain. One of the blogs had some information about rain, and I am admittedly a fair weather hunter. I don't like to go out and get rained on, get wet at all. I don't mind the cold. I don't mind the warm, but I'm not a fan of rain. So what have you guys found concerning heavy rains? So rain, as it influences deer movements, the work that some of my undergrads that have worked with me on have found is that for females, they really don't respond to rain. Their movements don't change a whole lot. Um, but males, if you had to say anything, that it, it appears that their movements actually decline a little bit in the rain. But, you know, it's not huge, but statistically they can say, yeah, they move less when it's raining. For females, there really is, is limited, um, limited effect. Okay, and I heard you mention wind in there too, and I think again, this you had some undergrads look at wind. What did what did you find? Because I think it's a common perception that the deer don't move on really windy days. True or false? 
there you might say that there's some influence but it's not huge you know and again we're looking at averages but for the most part there's not a lot of uh, effective wind although you have to keep in mind that when you want to start looking at weather you have to look at deer movements outside the rut because during the rut it doesn't matter what's going on those deer are going to be moving so we've looked when we've looked at weather we've always looked at late September and early October in that you know early archery season because once you get towards the end of October it's the rut and it doesn't matter whether it's raining it's a hurricane or whatever those deer are just focused on breeding and if you were to expect to have weather have any effect on their movements it would be it would be before the rut kicks in and during that time of year, it's a nice time of year, right? We Some years, we don't even get that much rain, and we don't get a lot of wind. So it's really difficult to say that wind or rain has a big effect because it's such a nice time of year. Now, if you looked in January or February, but generally we're not hunting deer in January or February, you know, deer probably respond to those winter storms although I had a student look at that and she really didn't find a whole lot of effect there either. Um, so, so no, I would say that wind and rain doesn't have a lot of effect on deer movements. Although, you know, my personal observations are when it's really windy and deer can't hear, they're really skittish and they're, they're really flighty. But, um, but they're still up and moving. They're still up and moving, exactly. So unfortunately, rain is not an excuse to stay in, but I don't care. I don't want to get wet, and I don't go hunting in the rain. Yeah, what what I heard is before the middle of October, rain is an excuse to stay in, but during the rut, it's not. So maybe I'll start hunting the rainstorms during the rut, but not before then. Yeah. Well, one of the other things that I heard you mention earlier was the moon also. So let's talk about the rut and what kicks it off and I think there's two schools of thought and maybe some people there's a third that kind of believe in both of them but the the two theories that I've heard are photo period and moon phase what's the research indicate what do you believe all the research indicates that it's photo period um, I mean it's been proven experimentally with um, captive deer in fact People that raise deer for um, commercial purposes, like red deer in New Zealand, they can shift the timing of breeding just by putting in putting deer in pens and controlling the photo period. Oh, really? And and yeah. And the reason that this is is it's deer getting pregnant in the fall. That gestation period is 200 days. So in Pennsylvania, they're getting pregnant. On Half of them are pregnant by November 13th, and half of those females have given birth by June 1st. The strategy of the deer is, is that I want to give birth to a fawn as early in the spring as possible so that that fawn can get as big as possible before winter comes. But I don't want to give birth too soon such that I give birth and it gets hit by a late snowstorm or really cold weather that that it's possible that my fawn is going to die from exposure. 
So what could you use to predict the best time to give birth in the spring? You're not going to use the moon. You're going to use day length because you know when the day length of November 13th, 200 days later, you're going to end up giving birth in the spring as early as possible but not too late and so that my fawn has the greatest chance of surviving when it's young so that it's as big as possible coming into its first winter. So it doesn't make any sense that the breeding date would change from one year to the next based on the moon, and that's where the research has shown that it's photoperiod that drives when breeding occurs. Now, of course, there's some variability, but again, when people you know, observe that variability in breeding activity and say it to the moon, I'm saying that that's just random chance. You're just a small sample of deer. But the when you collect 6,000 deer over six years and look to see whether it's related to the moon or not, I can show you unequivocally that the rut doesn't change from one year to the next. No, that's, that's good to hear. And, I mean, I've read quite a few studies and and – I tend to believe the same thing and that I'm going to put a lot more credence and like you said, a large sample size than I am my own personal experience, which may or may not support, uh, you know, moon phases or whatever. One of the other things I wanted to talk about is specifically about does coming into estrus is let's talk about if they're not bred the first time they came in to heat. When do they come in again? Cause a lot of people seem to think there's kind of a second rut and also maybe, talk about uh does that it's their first year that they're breeding don't they often come in a little bit later than say two three weeks after that november 13th peak so when a female comes into estrus and if she doesn't get bred she'll cycle and she'll come into estrus again about 21 to 30 days later and and they can even repeat that if they don't get bred but our data in Pennsylvania show that that there's got to be very few females that don't get bred the first time they come into estrus because there is no second peak. There is one peak. Half the females are bred by November 13th, and then there's a long tail where some females don't even get bred until February, uh, January, um, and some even into February, which is really extreme. But variability is good, right, because that way uh, animals can adapt to changing conditions and that sort of thing. But So there is no such thing as a second rut, but what, the, what does happen is that fawns will come into estrus later, and that's because a deer has to have a certain body mass and fat content before they're going to come into estrus. And so those fawns that were born in June, many of them are not going to be big enough to come into estrus, but if they do, it's going to be much later than the adult females. So when we have this peak at November 13th, we have a tail that extends, but that tail is made up of mostly um, fawns that get pregnant and come into heat later. Okay. So you know it. You might it might seem like you have a second heat or 
or you know cycling and there's a second rut but really probably what you're seeing is maybe the fawns in your area you know hitting that body size that allows them to come into estrus and then there's you know males chasing them around no that makes a lot of sense and i i mean speculating here but it seems logical that that rich egg agricultural ground or more moderate climates you're going to have a lot more of that going on than say north central pa oh exactly i mean in our northern study areas it's basically zero percent of fawns are going to get pregnant that first um fall oh wow that low huh yeah in our southern study areas maybe 10 percent um but in some parts of pennsylvania 30 to 50 percent of of fawns are getting pregnant and those are in our better habitats and in uh, areas with better soils either western pa or southeastern pa okay now that that makes a lot of sense the last question i wanted to ask you about the rut and breeding has to do and this, this is more folklore anecdote a lot of the good hunters I know seem to believe the tail end of the rut. And when I say tail end, I guess I mean the tail end of the peak. So let's say November 15th, 18th through Thanksgiving, the 28th type time frame for the sake of this discussion is the best time to kill an old big buck. Do you have any data that would support buck movement? Um, you know, we talked about bucks are moving a lot during November. Is there even during that peak, is there an additional peak, maybe that last week or two, or, or is that baloney? Well, I would think that you're, hmm, well, I don't have a lot of data um, for a couple of reasons. One, an old deer in Pennsylvania is three or four years old. You know, a five, six, seven-year-old deer, we don't have a whole lot, although our study areas have a decent number. Um, so we don't have real old deers. There's not a huge range in ages of bucks in Pennsylvania. The other thing, I guess if I had to say anything, is that I know a lot, I know some people who don't even bother hunting the first week of rifle season. They go out the second week just because there's way fewer. If you look at hunting activity it's opening day and three two or three days after that and then the set friday it picks up a little on saturday there's a lot but um the monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday of the second week there are very few hunters out there especially compared to the first two days and so there's less hunting pressure and I think if you were after a big buck and, you know, they might be less likely to do that, I'm going to hunker down for the first four hours of the day. They might be a little more active. Okay. Um, for that reason, I think you might have a better chance, but I don't think it has anything to do with the breeding season. Um, and for the most part, you know, the tail end of the breeding season, we don't have hunting in Pennsylvania. No hunting, um, do you mean like February or that, that November 20th to 28th time frame? Yeah, traditionally our archery season ended at the peak of the rut, 
and then there was nothing until after Thanksgiving. Oh man! So you couldn't even you couldn't even really hunt the tail end of the rut in Pennsylvania. And then um, and then the rifle season is you know that's just crazy because there's so many people hunting. Pennsylvania sounds like a tough state for the deer hunter. No Sunday hunting. No hunting during the the second half of the rut. <laughs> I don't know if that's my first choice to go deer hunting now. Well, we still kill 60% of the older bucks every year, so um, there's still a lot of success going on. A lot of opportunity dis- despite those uh, those seasons, huh? Well, that's, that's a good segue into the next question. I want to talk about survival rates. Now, let's say I had my eye on a buck all season. Maybe I saw him, but I didn't ever get a shot at him, and then I pick him up on game camera or I see him with my binoculars after the season. I'm talking about an adult buck now, two and a half years or older. What are the odds that deer as a percentage of a hundred is going to survive the winter and and be around next year? In Pennsylvania, 90% or better. Most of our mortality on once a deer hits a year old, um, hunting is the first primary cause of mortality. Then it's, cars, vehicle collisions, and then after that, I mean, it's some disease, it's very minor. So outside the hunting season, if a deer survives the hunting season, there's a 90% or better chance that it's still alive come the next hunting season. And of that 10% remaining, you're saying a large portion of that's if it gets hit by a car then, huh? Most of that is vehicle collisions. Yeah, that's the second risk factor. And then after that, you know, it's disease, you know, predation. But it's really hard for us to separate out, you know, was the deer killed by coyotes or did the deer die and get scavenged by coyotes or was it sick and the coyotes were able to kill it or something like that. So, yeah, the the odds of dying from predation are really, really low. So, yeah, it's hunting is is what drives deer population dynamics in Pennsylvania. Okay. Now that's good to hear then if, if I see one after season and I'm looking for it again next year. Sounds like in Pennsylvania, which is similar to a lot of the climates I hunt and a lot of the people that are listening, Midwestern or North, Northern Midwest, are going to be experiencing, there's a real good chance you're going to see that deer again next year. But I do want to point out that in Pennsylvania is, a little different in that we have essentially no winter mortality. Our winters are not severe enough to get a lot of winter mortality. So we're probably, you know, my colleague says we're in the sweet spot. We're not so far south, at least until recently, we don't get a lot of diseases like EHD. And we're not far north enough to get those severe winters. So we don't have to worry about deer yarding up winter mortality or that that thing. So that's why one of the reasons why we have such a high survival rate outside the hunting season. Okay, no, that's a good point to bring up, and and maybe not something that's intuitive. I know Montana, where I'm at now, for example, on a severe winter, there will be pretty high mortality rates sometimes. And I know I think it was 2012, maybe. In 2017, were both pretty severe winters. That was before I lived out here, but I've heard a lot of the locals talk about big die-offs in those years, and you know, from freezing and and just really severe winters. Yeah, that's nothing that we don't get that in. I mean, it's been decades. I mean, in the 
late 70s, we had a really bad year, but Pennsylvania even stopped recording um, any measures of winter severity because it's just not a factor. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to talk about with buck survival is public lands, specifically public lands in your study area, which it sounds like they're either almost entirely or, or completely public lands. And I think a, there's a misconception out there that every buck gets killed on public land every year, right? There's no two, three, four-year-old bucks. They're all getting killed as, as year-olds or two-year-olds. So what does your data show the survival rates of these two-and-a-half-year-old and older bucks on public lands to be in Pennsylvania? Well, I've been monitoring survival of different sex and age classes of deer since the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, back in 2002 and 2005, when we did the buck study, survival of, um, we, so we, Pennsylvania implemented antler point restrictions, and survival rate went from 20% in yearlings, it jumped up to 50 to 60%, and in older bucks, probably in the 40% range. So survival doubled, um, or at least doubled for bucks when we implemented antler point restrictions. Can you talk about the antler point restrictions real quick? What's the specific restriction in PA for your area? Well, we went from a deer had to have an antler at least three inches long or, or have two or more points. That was what was legal prior. And then in antler point restrictions, it depends on where you are in Pennsylvania, but it's either three or four points on one side, essentially is what it is. Okay. By doing that, we reduced the harvest rate on yearling males by 50%. So we cut it in half. Most two and a half and older bucks are legal to harvest. So it did reduce the harvest rate on the older bucks, I think that was just because a lot of times people could see, yeah, it had antlers, but I couldn't tell if it was legal. So we ended up, you know, some of those older bucks had higher survival rates, but the antler point restrictions only protect those year and a half olds mostly. Right. So in your opinion, antler point restrictions definitely work for protecting that age class of deer. Well, they worked in Pennsylvania because we had, prior to antler point restrictions, we harvested 80% of the antler deer every year. And, and so those antler point restrictions had a huge effect on the number of deer that survived to the next hunting season to be two and a half years old. But in a lot of states, like some of your western states, you already have fairly low harvest rates on those bucks. And by putting in antler point restrictions, you're really not going to gain a whole lot of benefit from it. So it really depends on on the population dynamics and, and growth rates of of your population. No, appreciate those insights. That's something I hadn't thought about. We could talk for two hours on just antler point restrictions. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to have you back on uh, a second time and we'll, we can do that. For now, let's go ahead and, and move into... I think this is a, a controversial topic somewhat too. 
aging deer on the hoof in rack size. So a lot of my audience is trying to target older age class, you know, bigger racks, mature, bigger body deers. And I know in the area of Michigan that I hunted, and I'm assuming in the big woods of PA, a mature buck isn't always sporting a 140 inch or larger rack. Are there any indicators that a hunter can depend on reliably to age a deer on the hoof? And if so, what are they? Well, you know, I'm not the best person to ask because I'm a scientist and I need as accurate estimate as possible. And I know that visually aging deer is not accurate, accurate enough for the work that I do. In fact, in Pennsylvania, we just age deer as six-month-old, year-and-a-half, or two-and-a-half and older. Because otherwise, there there is no good way to age them unless you pull a tooth and section it, and that takes a lot of time and costs a lot of money. Right, like cementum annuli or, or whatever that's called. Yeah, exactly. Like count, It's like counting tree rings. But in terms of aging a deer on the hoof, I mean, I... You you can do it. It'll get you in the ballpark, but I guarantee you that you could have errors of two or three years. Um, there's been a little bit of work done on it, and it's not very accurate, but certainly it's a guide. And, you know, if you want, you know, there's some books out at, you know, QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association. You know, they've got a lot of good info on on you know, looking at characteristics of older deer, and they'll, they'll get you closer than if you didn't do anything, you know, it's, it's just looking at the size of the rack. But, you you know, they've shown that you can be off by two or three years using those characteristics. So, you know, it depends what your purpose is. I think from a hunting standpoint, yeah, they'll help you identify perhaps an older, more mature buck. For me as a scientist, it's not a tool that would help me with my work if I need to know the age structure of a population. Okay, no, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. And while we're talking about racks, one of the other blog entries I read that was interesting to me talked about velvet bucks and basically when the racks are done growing or developing and I was kind of surprised by that date and that blog entry can you talk a little bit about when do you think uh, antlers are pretty much done growing well apparently they're pretty much done growing the end of um, July but I'm like you I hate to believe it because I've been watching that buck all summer and he's still in velvet and I swear they're still they still got to grow because I want them to be bigger yeah for sure but yeah, most of most of that growth is done by now, you know, and they'll be losing their velvet soon, so or shedding the velvet. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing um, that 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 growth is so rapid, right? It starts in in June, and you know, eight weeks later, it's done. Yeah, and it's amazing to me. So I've I've lived in Montana. This is my second year now to see the same thing with elk and, and elk obviously grow huge antlers and they shed even later and a lot of elk aren't shed until April and then to see them put on all that all that antler by August and you know they're out of velvet in mid-August a lot of times so it's just I don't know, it's an incredible process 
Yeah, and that, you know, that gets into nutrition and habitat quality and, you know, most of that calcium is just being sucked out of their skeleton. There, there's no way that they could eat enough to, to eat the nutrients to grow those bones. So really, large antlers are a function of good habitat quality that's available year-round as opposed to it's not the food that they're eating you know, while they're growing antlers. Right. It's a function of, like you said, that, di- that diet and the minerals over the course of the entire year. Yep. Well, that's a talking about nutrition diet. That's a, a perfect segue into the next couple of questions I had. And I want to talk about deer browse, deer baiting and food plots. And the first question is, do you believe baiting deer is detrimental to overall deer herd health why or why not well baiting deer you mean in terms of during the hunting season well i mean hunting season in general what are what are your thoughts and opinions or what's the science say well baiting if it's done if you do it smart you know with a feeder that distributes feed you know at a certain time so deer learn that if i'm the first one there i'm going to get more feed than if i'm you know a dawdler um so those timed feeders can be a good tool for, you know, increasing the effectiveness of hunting in terms of trying to harvest more antlerless deer. But feeding or baiting in general is just a problem. You know, look at tuberculosis in Michigan. It's just a way to spread disease. And so deer managers have always, you know, frowned upon feeding because, you're artificially concentrating deer, you're increasing the risk of disease transmission, and that just leads to problems. I know well, a lot of areas in Michigan now, especially with CWD, have outlawed feeding completely. In Montana, it's illegal. It seems like that's the, the trend. And you know, my audience in general and myself, people are trying to hunt natural movement patterns, so there's not a lot of people that are listening to this that I think that are, are baiting deer or I wouldn't expect that there are a lot. So it's just kind of curious of your thoughts on the topic and it's going to lead into what's the last topic that I want to talk about here in a minute, which is going to be CWD. But before we get to that, so we're talking about baits and when I think of baits, I think of, you know, corn piles and apples, sugar beets, whatever people have carrots. What about food plots? Any better, any worse? Why or why not? Food plots, uh, I guess it depends on, I guess you have the potential for concentrating deer a little bit more. I, I, you know, I don't have a lot of research that I don't, not aware of, I'm not aware of any research that indicates that food plots increase disease transmission. So, you know, I'm not, not really against food plots um, from that perspective. I don't think there's any evidence out there that suggests that food plots increase disease transmission. Okay. Any personal opinions that you want to share or no? Well, I I just say that, like, I look around where I live, which is mixture of housing developments, forest, and farmland, and I don't see any need to put in a food plot because all the farmers around me have created food plots. Um, the only benefit of a food plot would be to attract a deer, I guess, and increase my opportunity to harvest one. But I don't 
have any inclination for or interest in putting in a food plot, you know, on my property. And and I guess I mean even if I own some big woods, I wouldn't be that keen on, you know, putting in a food plot either. That's just my opinion. Sure. I'm not really a farmer, so. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I I joke around, and if anyone's listening, this I don't mean this offensive, but. I always kind of categorize people into two areas these days. There's deer hunters and deer farmers, and it seems like a lot of the television shows, the big-name people are, are deer farmers more than deer hunters. Well, the, the last question I had on this was about deer browse, and this is a topic that comes up a lot on the, the forum I'm a member of. It seems like everybody knows the common food sources, especially the ag crops, you know, the soybeans, the corn, the alfalfa, in the mass crops, oaks and apples, the big stuff. But what about deer browse? Have you noticed any trends in the big woods or areas where there's not a lot of agriculture, any preferred browse plants that deer are honing in on? Specifically, if there's any during the hunting season, I'm sure people would be interested in that. Well, by hunting seasons in Pennsylvania, it's pretty much, unless it's the early season, there isn't a lot of green stuff. So it's really mostly browse and or acorns, actually. You know, it's the mass. If we have an acorn crop, acorns are far more important than any foods. So I would say that, you know, understanding browse preference in terms of hunting in the big woods is pretty low on the scale of importance. I mean, it's way down there. I mean, what you would want to know is, where are the acorns, especially white oaks, because they're, they have lower tannins. And, and if it's a really bad year, but you might have a ridge that's got, you know, a few oak trees that's got white oaks, I mean, that's what you'd want to know. Other years, you know, where you've got oaks everywhere, you know, we can show that uh, the research I turkeys is that the fall hunting season, if it's a good oak year, the harvest rates go way down because the turkeys are dispersed everywhere. And when we have a really poor mast year with the acorns, harvest rates go up. So it has, you know, the mast has a huge impact on hunting during the archery season. Browse, nah, I don't think I would pay much attention to it. I mean, the food that's out there is really important to deer. Um, different times of the year, the spring herbs that come up, the flowers, Canada Mayflower, I mean, in the springtime, that might make up 90% of the diet. Um, it's really important to lactating females. Um, but during the hunting season, in the big woods and those forested areas, um, it's all about acorns. It's not about browse or, or species of browse, that sort of thing. Okay. Well, and going back to our earlier discussion, it sounds like it'd be a lot more beneficial if you could somehow to find some of those hideouts than it would be to focus on what plants they're browsing on that time of year? Well, for the rifle season, for sure. Um, archery, archery where deer aren't influenced by the hunting, they're influenced more either the breeding or the food availability. Then, and again, that what, what would have an influence would be mast and where it is. Well, that's a good good takeaway from a scientist. So focus on the mast, and it sounds like even more so on limited mast years. If you can find some where there's not a lot 
that that's definitely going to be high on the priority list for deer in the area. Yeah, but keep in mind they still they don't leave their home range. But you know if if there is food within their home range, you know the areas where they spend is going to shift. Okay, no that that again that makes a lot of sense. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk about, and it kind of goes back to the baiting discussion, is chronic wasting disease, or CWD. And it's impacting more hunters in more states every single year. I know just this past year, Montana added more hunting zones where it's mandatory CWD check. Michigan has CWD now. So can you talk about your knowledge of CWD? And do you think CWD is at the beginning of the end for deer hunting? What's, what's your predictions? Well, I think chronic wasting disease is a serious, serious problem. It could affect deer hunting in many different ways. One of those ways could be in hunters, whether they have an interest to go deer hunting. I know in Wisconsin and some parts of the state, there's probably, a, if you shoot a buck, there's probably a 50% chance that you, if, when you get it tested, it comes back positive for CWD. You know, why would you want to shoot a deer if there's a 50% chance that you don't want to eat it? For me, that's, you know, pretty disheartening. It also has implications for programs where, like the in Pennsylvania, we have hunters sharing the harvest, um, where hunters donate deer that they harvest to, you know, give to food banks and needy folks. Are we going to want to be feeding, giving away meat that's potentially contaminated with a disease that's fatal to deer and close, closely related to some diseases, similar diseases in humans. You know, there's no evidence that it can be transmitted to humans, but the CDC isn't going to say that there's zero chance of that. So chronic wasting disease is serious. I think it's more serious out west because deer populations have lower reproductive rates and so there's some evidence from Wyoming that it could impact the growth rates of, po of deer populations and actually cause populations to decline. I'm not sure that could happen in the east because we have such high reproductive rates. I mean, we have very productive soils, high densities of deer that even if chronic wasting disease isn't, you know, it's so slow growing that a female could produce, you know, for one or two years before she dies from the disease. So it may have less of an impact on eastern populations, but still that's a concern. Yeah, I, I, I'm very concerned about chronic wasting disease and what effect it will have on, on the ability of wildlife managers to manage deer populations. And probably more, you know, as important to me would be the traditions of hunting that could be lost or in, or how it could affect those traditions and opportunities. Is there anything that you're aware of right now that hunters can do to help stop the spread? The only thing that we know of right now is to reduce deer density. Well, like you don't feed, um, you know, don't bait in deer and do things that concentrate deer. Um, they've shown that, you know, uh, mineral licks, um, puddles around mineral licks in the mud 
They can actually detect the prion in that mud around mineral licks. So that, again, that concentrating deer, just don't do it. Don't feed, don't put out salt licks. Anything that brings, causes deer to interact more than they normally would is going to increase the transmission of the disease. The other thing is I think hunters need to recognize that the only tool we have in the toolbox right now is to reduce deer densities, um, which again will reduce transmission of the disease, at least it's thought of. And the largest segment of the deer population is female. And so it's very important to think about increasing harvest rates on antlerless deer. If you're going to want to reduce the population significantly, you're going to have to increase harvest rates on antlerless deer. Um, and that means, you know, when you do that, you're going to end up with lower deer densities. But I guess the question you have to ask yourself is, do you want lower deer densities and slow the spread of the disease? Or do you want to end up like Wisconsin and have every other deer that you shoot be infected with CWD? Yeah, it's kind of a grim prospect for hunters either way. You want lower opportunity, you know, maybe next year because you harvested more antlerless deer, or do you want the same opportunity and and a lot higher prevalence of the disease? And it seems like I know in Michigan and in, in the CWD area, kind of the, the south central part of the state where where it's the most prevalent. I mean, it's even the last two seasons since it's been discovered or three seasons now it seems to be spreading rapidly and, and higher 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 percentages of the deer are, are testing positive? You know, it's not just transmission, but we know, you know, the research that I've done in Pennsylvania, if you lower the deer population, you will have fewer males, and that means fewer males dispersing. We also know that in lower deer densities, fewer female fawns disperse, and so and they disperse farther on average than males. So reducing deer density isn't just to stop the transmission, but it also slows the spread of the disease because you have fewer of these dispersing deer dispersing and, and potentially spreading the disease. So there's, there's, you know, there's multiple reasons why uh, reduced deer densities can slow the spread of CWD. Yeah, so if I understand what you're saying, one of the biggest tools for hunters to help out right now would, would be to, to buy some antlerless tags and participate in some antlerless hunts and, and take a few deer that they might not normally take if they're you know traditionally uh, buck hunters or, or trophy hunters. Yeah, and, and the state wildlife agencies that are responsible for managing the deer need the support of hunters, um, you know, to to take actions that may appear drastic or counterproductive to, you know, your goals as a deer hunter, but think about the long-term objective of what you want in terms of disease spread and, and the hunting tradition. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dwayne, I definitely appreciate talking to you today. You had a lot of good insights, a lot of good information, and a lot of points that I think will be interesting to my listeners. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Uh, no, I'd just like to say that, that everything we've talked about today is, is sort of a, 
side product or side benefit of my actual research. Um, so my research, you know, isn't really about deer movements or the rut or any of that stuff. I'm really focused on the research project is looking at how uh, deer browsing, soil conditions, and, and competing vegetation uh, composition of the forest vegetation influences the plant communities in our forests with the objective of having healthy forests so that we can harvest trees, we can have sustainable populations of wildlife that depend on that forest, and also have a healthy deer herd. So that's the objective of my research that, you know, we, we, hard, we just nibbled at little bits and pieces of it, but the bulk of what we talked about was simply purely a side benefit that has nothing to do with the objectives of my research. So, um, and my research is supported by the Game Commission, which is supported primarily by sportsmen. So I hope folks recognize the value of research and that there's lots of unintended benefits of doing research. I guess I'd just like to point out, point that out to, to your listeners. And also, you know, we have a blog where we try and post something at least once a week um, about something about deer, um, usually focused related to the research project that we have. And I encourage people to go to deer.psu.edu and check that out. And I think they would you know, if, especially if you're a hunter, would find some interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's that's how I first discovered you. And again, like you said, it's kind of a, a secondary benefit from your primary research. But there was a lot of things, at least to me, that were super interesting on the deer blog and the stuff that you guys are doing out in the field, the collar studies. And, you know, you, you touched on it, the importance of your research to having a balanced forest plan, or I don't know if ecology is the right word, but overabundant deer populations definitely af affect the plant life in, in a negative way. So again, going back to antlerless deer harvest and deer harvest in general, I mean, hunting, I think you'll agree, or, or it's a fact, is the most important management tool there is out there. And we want to keep people active in hunting. And, and that's a big goal of my podcast is to introduce people to hunting and to help people become better hunters. And I think that all works hand in hand to have, you know, a, a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. Hunting is the most important or the most effective tool in the wildlife deer managers toolbox. And it would be a shame to lose that. I, I agree. Uh, the tradition and what it would mean for, you know, for wildlife in general. So, well, I want to thank you again, Dwayne, and I'm looking forward to getting this out to the listeners. Appreciate your time, and and if I can talk to you again in the future here, maybe we'll get you on the line uh, in a couple more months or, or next year. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. All right, hey, take care. Okay, bye.